Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Karen Conley, Senior Vice President of Clinical at Kairos. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, Karen, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my discussion is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So, Karen, the floor is yours. Thanks, Matt. Well, again, Karen Conley, and um, I serve as a Senior Vice President for Clinical at Kairos. And, and what that means is I, I'm privileged to lead a group of nurses and physicians and healthcare administrators um, in serving not only our customers on the health system and health plan side, but also serving as internal experts on everything clinical uh, for our organization. So that's with product or any internal thing. So um, I'm also as a nurse by background, so uh, originally trained as an oncology nurse and then um, spent almost 30 years in healthcare um, nursing executive practice in big health systems in and around Boston. And uh, four years ago, I made the big leap over to industry, and it's been great making that switch from solving problems for one health system to solving problems across the country for access to healthcare. So it's been a great ride so far, for sure. Yeah, and kind of with that long history within healthcare, I'm interested, what first made you interested in getting into healthcare? I'm one of those really weird anomalies where I've wanted to be a nurse since I was six years old. So, <laughs> so you know, spent my entire childhood, you know, learning about it, dressing up as a nurse for Halloween um, and things like that. And actually, my father really wanted me to be a physician but I knew that I didn't want to be a diagnostician. I really wanted to be have that close relationship with patients and make make a difference right at the the patient level. So um, so went into nursing and instead of my uh, doctorate in medicine, got my doctorate in nursing, and and here I am today, really trying to fix access across the country. So it's been a, it's been a great ride. So when you say looking to try and fix access across the country, you know, kind of what does that really mean in terms of you know like what type of access and then. You know, what are you looking at to try and resolve some of the issues? Well, I think, you know, now that, you know, with the pandemic, it's really pushed patients to, um, you know, they haven't had access to healthcare the way they should. They really, we have a lot of healthcare debt due to this pandemic because patients haven't been able to get the care that they need um, due to the pandemic. So, you know, working within Kairos, um, you know, we're trying to make sure that everyone has that electronic access to the care that they need, where they need it, and when they need it. And so, you know, creating those seamless and frictionless experiences for patients and families to find and, and book that care is extremely important in, in making sure that everyone has access, access to what they need. So you just, I think, mentioned two very important things. One, finding care and then being able to book it, um, which I suspect are also two extremely complex issues when you <laughs> break are. them apart. So maybe let's kind of dive into the finding it part first. You know, what are some of the ways that people can find care? There are so many different ways to find care, and I think that's what makes it so challenging. So, you know, we find that um, a lot of patients, I mean, most patients start electronically when they're looking for their search, and they're either looking at their healthcare website or their health plan website, or they're doing a Google search. And so we need to figure out how to make sure that no, what, no matter what avenue a patient comes into that search experience, 
that they're finding the care that they need. Now, patients, you know, they're really looking for um, those factors that are that are going to make them match to the right type of care. And so they're looking to make sure like their insurance is accepted um, and that that care that they're choosing is going to be paid for. Um, they're also, you know, what's really important to them, too, is making sure that the provider that they choose has those clinical attributes um, that makes them uh, that makes that provider able to take care of the problem they're trying to solve. And I think that's what's really challenging about scheduling and finding care for healthcare is that each patient has a unique need at different types times during their care journey, and each provider has different attributes in order to meet that need. And so having that mismatch of uh, a patient choosing the wrong provider or a provider's panel being filled with those types of patients that they can't take care of, it just leads to frustration um, on both sides of the coin. And so you know, we try to make sure that we are incorporating all those attributes into the digital profile for the provider so that a patient's able to easily sort through that information and select what's best for them. You just mentioned that there's a lot of different electronic means of you know, patients being able to find a clinician to work with. You know, how have you seen the evolution of that process? Um, you know, because it's personally, I find, you know, I'm not even sure how I would navigate through it because I've always had the the great fortune of having a family member in the healthcare field. First, my dad and now my wife. And it's, if I need something, I go to one of them and they're like, okay, here's the person you talk to. And if you call and it's not working, I'll just call them in the background and it comes through. So it's, you know, I think being able to talk through what the more common experience is would probably be very helpful. Sure. You know, I think that a lot start with a Google search. And, and so, and just really searching for a condition or the name of a provider. Um, just because you have, you know, a friend or a family member in the healthcare field or your neighbor tells you Dr. So-and-so is great for you, um, doesn't mean it's the right provider for you. And so you could, you know, for an example, you could have, you know, your, your family member or your, you know, neighbor next door suggest an orthopod for you and you have a knee problem and you could search that provider by name and schedule an appointment with that provider by calling or booking online. And that provider could be an elbow specialist and not a knee specialist. And so it's really trying to find that right provider that's gonna take care of that need. And so that's why the digital assets that a provider has, has to be really curated in order to make sure that all of those attributes are really easily visible and navigable uh, by patients and families. And you know, kind of where, where are the best places to be able to curate those digital assets that you just mentioned? And you know, also, what are the most effective means of presenting those so they can be found and then easily digested? Within health systems, it really is that provider directory that they surface and find a doc tool that they have on their website. Um, and by curating each profile, you know, patients want to know what does this provider look like if I'm picking a new provider? So they want to see a photo. Um, they also want to know about their, their care practices. So by adding a biography or some professional statement in there where a provider is talking about, this is what I'm interested in, this, you know, here's a little bit about my family, maybe even, or what I like to do in my spare time, really allows that patient to start to understand what type of provider this is and if it's someone that can work for them. And then other attributes, you know, that really smart search experience where they go in and they can search for any condition or treatment and only those providers that take care of that return in that search. So, so creating that search experience that's really easy, you know, patients don't know how to find this care. And so we need to figure out how to make it easier for them. Like, I'll give you an example. One of the things that, you know, we noticed during the pandemic is that 
there were so many people that did not get preventative care. They just didn't. I mean, and, and it wasn't even offered at the time. So we think about women over 50 who need an annual mammogram. Um, finding that care is really difficult and you're on the phone for a long time. And so we're trying, we tried to um, serve up that easy experience for patients to find a mammogram with a series of questions. And so um, when you're looking for a, a, a diagnostic mammogram, you need a lot more equipment, you might need more testing. And so that's if you have a problem. If you just want a screening mammogram, it's pretty simple. And so by asking certain questions to a patient, we can screen out those patients that need a screening mammogram as opposed to a diagnostic mammogram. And in that case, they really need to make a phone call to make sure that they're set up for the right services when they arrive there. Um, there are not many health systems that, that let you schedule that type of visit yet, but patients want that convenience. I mean, you think about a, a busy woman who works and has children and all that, and they're, they're trying to you know, take care of themselves and their family, having that opportunity to, in the middle of the night when I'm still up because a child woke up or whatever, to like just get some of that stuff done is, is great. And so I think the more and more frictionless experiences like that and that opportunity to really book online um, the better it will be for you know patients to this you know this healthcare debt that I talked about at the beginning through the pandemic. We need to catch up with that, and so we need to offer many different ways to have patients access that that care. Yeah, and kind of that's a nice way to transition into you know kind of diving into the challenges around being able to do the scheduling aspect of it. You know, because as you were just saying, like if you can maybe create a relatively simple decision tree, depending on what you're looking for to help guide to the right type of appointment, you know, that seems like the first step. And then the next step is, you know, how, how does the scheduling process actually operate? Yeah. And that's the tricky part too, is making sure we have, you know, I think the first thing, you know, we talked about is really engaging that, that consumer. And so having, you know, different avenues to enter in and, and, you know, virtual assistants are big now and, and using actual virtual assistants. So that's one way I think to um, activate those decision trees too, is through virtual assistants. And I think more and more consumers are used to using that. So that's one piece. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about the search and making sure that all the information is right there and that, a patient can easily search and and um, and find the care that they need. But when it comes to you know matching and scheduling, patients are looking for availability. So they want to know you know based on what their concern is, how fast can I find find this provider, see this provider, or maybe something that I don't mind doing down the road. And so if they're available later on, I'm willing to wait until that provider is available. So you know surfacing that type of information the appointment availability is, is really important. Um, and so, you know, when we looked at, you know, we did it, we did a study and we looked at 20 um, of the top uh, US News and World Report um, health systems and did an evaluation of their digital experience. And when we looked at availability, um, you know, over 80% of healthcare consumers said that availability was really important. And so I think, you know, in this day, you know, we're used to instant gratification and consumerism. So we can go to open table and find it, you know, a table for tonight. And we can, you know, have Amazon deliver something we need tomorrow. And so, you know, they're really looking for that in in healthcare too. But only 5% of those top 20 hospitals had availability public on their website when a patient went to look to book. So it's a mystery, I think, for a lot of patients now, but it's a difficult thing to to surface as well. So it's really this change management where we work with health systems to 
how do you make more availability, uh, you know, public and, and available? And so, you know, sometimes you have to leverage different tools and different providers. So, you know, we work with health systems say, how are you using your advanced practice nurses or your physician assistants to I- increase that availability throughout, say, a primary care practice? And so that's, and, and a lot of times if patients want to have a need met right away, you know, they don't care if it's the physician or a PA or a nurse practitioner, they just, they want to get that need met. And so, you know, helping work with health systems to go through this change management process to make that availability, you know, front and center and, and more of it <laughs> um, is really something that's, that is necessary in order for patients to get that gratification. Yeah. And it kind of sounds like implicit in what you're saying there is, you know, one, one issue is the availability isn't transparent. So it's, you know, when you're on the outside of the system and maybe arguably, even if you're inside the system, you don't have a good picture of when a visit is possible, but also the, there's the availability issue of, uh, you know, certain clinicians are going to be booked so far in advance that it's hard to find an open slot. And I think you were saying that you need to kind of look at the entire care team and figure out how can you, you know, get someone in if they need to be seen more, more quickly um, and still have, a, you know, as you said, it might not be the person, the physician at the top of the chain, but someone who is connected who can help at least start start the process of, you know, um, evaluation and ingestion of information to, uh, you know, pursue a particular course of action as needed. Yeah. Yeah. We found that, you know, 83% of patients um, select a provider based on availability. And so, you think about those really highly specialized providers and providers in general, that's their last sense of control is over their schedule. They've given up so much more, the management, their offices, um, their time. And so, you know, so it's really, um, you know, we have a lot of providers that are reticent to really to have this online booking experience. However, we've been working with some really highly specialized providers that are using virtual care as a tool um, in order to make their availability better. So, you know, we think about, I think about like large regional children's hospitals. And as a parent, if your child needs a specialist, you want them to get in right away. And you want to make sure, you know, you don't care who that specialist is, as long as they're at that organization and, and they have that reputation. And so we're using virtual care in some of those instances to have the initial appointment just virtually. So that parent has that, you know, connection with that provider right away and can talk about their child's problem and develop a next step or a next appointment, as opposed to, again, these regional centers traveling a long distance, waiting a long time, not having any questions answered for sometimes months at a time because availability is so scarce. And so I think by partnering with um, an initial virtual appointment and then a follow-up in-person appointment really helps make that patient access journey better in those types of situations. Yeah, and I definitely want to explore kind of that virtual care aspect. But first, for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Karen Conley from Kairos. We've been talking about access issues, um, both in terms of scheduling and availability and finding a clinician. But, you know, Karen, as you were just mentioning, now you're starting to see some places weave in virtual care. Um, So I guess first, I'd like to just get your definition of how do you see virtual care? Like kind of what, what is it? What does it encompass? Um, and then we can kind of get into how do you kind of create a broader continuum of care based, you know, kind of based in the direction that you're already suggesting. Yeah. So virtual care is, um, 
it's such a huge umbrella. I mean, uh, you know, commonly people think of it as that live or synchronous video visit. And so that's the most common one that we found the pandemic really kind of force into to people taking advantage of. Uh, but there's also the store and forward um, type visit, where it's that asynchronous visit um, or care. And that's really like filling out online forms. So your intake forms before you come for your visit. So you're saving time there. That chat, so that asynchronous chat with your provider. A lot of health systems are using that now to get questions answered uh, for patients, but in an asynchronous way. That secure email and messaging with providers is really important. And I know a lot of patients took advantage of that. And then, you know, those virtual care interviews with dynamic um, AI, which is, is new now. So really leading questions and gathering information. Um, so those are all great um, aspects of it. If um, like my experience of doing a, an online form for my primary care, and then I walk into the office and they hand me an iPad to do the same thing again. So it's really figuring out, we got to integrate this stuff so to make it easier. But you know, in addition, there's also remote monitoring. And so using devices to remotely monitor, especially those real chronic diseases, hoping you know things like um, cardiac disease and having those physiological monitors, blood pressure monitors, pulse, pulse ox, um, and implantable cardiac devices now with Bluetooth capability and your providers monitoring that all the time. Um, so those, you know, the goals of those types of virtual care are to prevent hospitalization and ED visits. And they're definitely worth the equipment investment if we can keep people out of the hospital and, and keep them healthy. And then finally, this global umbrella of mHealth, and that's merging those devices with uh, all of this data to really improve the health of populations. So it's so broad. And I think there are so many people that think of just those live, you know, video visits, synchronous video visits as telehealth, but it's just so much bigger and growing day, day by day. And kind of given all those different modalities, and I'm sure that there's probably another whole multitude that you weren't able to identify there because as you <laughs> said, it is such a large umbrella. You know, what are some of the effective strategies that you're seeing to integrate that with the in-person care? I think that, you know, the key to that is really, again, I'm back to this like frictionless experience where whatever platform is being used um, needs to be really simple to use for not only the patients, but the providers. And it has to integrate into the provider's daily work and really easy to use. You've, we all know the things we've seen during the pandemic where people are on mute and they're unable to launch a video <laughs> video uh, chat that, you know, we need to make sure that we're selecting things that are really easy. You know, I think about uh, one of the things that I really have concerns about is our, you know, people that identify as being disabled. Over 75 million people in the United States are disabled in some way, and that could be visual, hearing, physical, or cognitive. And if we're not reaching everybody through these, these modalities, then you know, we're not really serving the population. And so, you know, over 90% of the people that have identified as having disability can't hear or see um, video or, or, or visual things. So we need to make sure that those systems that we're developing allow for automatic closed captioning, you know, when we're using it. So someone that does not have hearing can actually understand their visit with their provider. We have to make sure that, you know, screen readers can read everything digitally that we're putting up online. So that's one thing that I worry about um, a lot with this is making sure that access is true access for everybody. Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like, you know, as you're saying, 
if we're going to be using these tools, they have to be equitable and that they can't, you know, entrench or create new health disparities by not enabling the access for everyone who needs it. Because, you know, I think especially based off of the descriptions of, you know, all those different modalities you were giving, it's, you know, you start to get a much broader, fuller picture of each patient as you're able to connect them into those services, which, you know, I think you also said is going to that goal of driving better overall health and keeping people healthier. Yeah. And, and you know, I think the other challenge too, is that we have people in the United States that don't have access to internet. And so, you know, as we, all these great modalities are coming up and we're making care easier, we have to think about that too. Um, that's a huge problem to solve that I know we're not solving on this call today, but it's something else to think about is that we have to make sure even those in rural America or in those, you know, de- internet deserts that, that we're figuring out how to bring this type of care to them as well. Yeah, and I guess also on top of you know, just bringing the care to individuals, you know, have you seen a refinement yet of a better understanding around you know kind of what type of care can be started or initiated or monitored using the virtual care, and then you know is that then being transitioned to an in-person visit at an appropriate time? You know, kind of where does the understanding of that kind of back and forth lie at the moment? Yeah, I think providers obviously have a really good sense of what things can be, they can do virtually and what they can't. Um, thank God they do. Um, but patients have no idea. They have, they have no idea. So sometimes it just starts with a question and their problem can't get solved that way, but at least they're talking to someone and they're finding out that they need, uh, you know, an in-person visit in order to solve that problem. I think developing really smart search match and schedule options can eliminate some of that friction by just surfacing those types of appointments for those conditions that can actually be treat, treated in that fashion. Um, so really don't want to be frustrating a patient by they, them thinking they're going to have a virtual visit and their problems are going to be solved when, you know, up front that that condition cannot be evaluated in, in a virtual way. So by creating those experiences so the patient is pointed to the right type of appointment for the condition that they have is kind of the best case scenario um, for the patient and for the, the providers so that they're you know receiving the right modality of a visit type for that patient at the right time as well. Yeah, that, and that seems to be a very important point where you're, you're kind of saying basically set expectations so that way right. it's, you know, you can try to get both sides to understand what can and can't be done in each modality. And, you know, I think it even goes back to, you know, kind of your, when you first started talking about the virtual care a few minutes ago, where I think you were saying, you know, it could if you're talking like a regional area, it could the virtual could be used as that almost initial intake to then save time and get more directly yep. to the, the heart of the issue when you're able to come in person. Yeah. You know, the other challenge I think we're running into too in health systems with virtual care is the licensure uh, perspective where, you know, you really have to be licensed in the state where the, the patient is at the time. And that makes it, you know, we did have a more, a little bit of a lift on that during the pandemic where, you know, that we, we lifted some of those rules, but they're coming back in place now. And there's still over 25 states that have this really strict um, licensure where they have to be in this state. I'm working with um, one health system now where they are hiring physical therapists and that are licensed in every state across the country in order to provide virtual care for all of their patients, which seems like such a waste of resources, you know, that what, you know, we should be able to have this cross compact between states and everyone should be able to, you know, treat virtual care wherever they are. Cause it doesn't really matter if you're sitting in Idaho and your patients in California, <laughs> you know what I mean? From a clinical care perspective. 
Um, so I think that's another hurdle that we have to figure out how we can get over to really make uh, virtual care ubiquitous within the healthcare system. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a fair point because especially as you said, when you're talking about clinical care, the standards are the same all across the country. It's, you're not gonna have one standard of care if, you know, using your example, if you're in Idaho as opposed to California, everyone's following national guidelines, most likely from a national association governing that particular type of clinician. Um, yeah, so it's you know, kind of my personal opinion is I agree with you. It makes sense to try and get to just one national license. And it would be very interesting to see how that ends up having a, you know, a ripple impact on access to care and right. just the approach to care, because then you don't have to worry about just playing within necessarily, you know, predetermined boundaries. You know, you could have a hospital on the border of a state and now they can more readily serve where probably a bunch of their patient population is coming from anyway. Yeah. And we're developing workarounds now to ask a patient if they're going to be in that state at that time. And it's just, it's just an unnecessary extra step. You know, I think, you know, along those same lines too, is that we also have to worry about that payment parity between virtual care and in-person care. We're not there yet with that either. And we have to follow the almighty dollar, obviously health systems do. And so, you know, if we have, you know, states that still don't recognize payment parity, then health systems are not going to be incentivized to really leverage this as a tool to improve access across the country. So I think that's another piece that, again, we're not going to solve on this call today, but it's, it's another barrier to really making virtual care that tool that we can actually leverage to improve health, you know, across the United States. Yeah. No, and I think it's also you know, an issue that needs to be identified as well, because as you said, if you're not going to get paid for a service or you're going to get paid at such at a level that's so far below, you know, the in-person aspect, you're going to expect the business to choose the way that it's going to bring in more money and you know use that to theoretically maintain its quality of care, kind of the, the expectation of services. Kind of since we're opening that door a little bit, you know, it's the question is, you know, if you could shift more into value-based care where you're maybe working off a capitated model or some other model where you're not having to worry about a fee-for-service basis, do you think that ends up helping to solve some of those issues? Because then you're just going to find, okay, what's the best care at the right time to be to most efficiently utilize the resources we're, we're being provided? Absolutely. I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, and it's it's really hard to get there. And I think that's why you know, scheduling and, and um, care, healthcare is just so complex, is that you know, we need to change those, those um, perspectives so that we are looking at total health and a whole episode of care for a patient, as opposed to these, uh, or, you know, long, longitudinal episodes, as opposed to these individual episodes and charging for that. So um, I think that value-based care is really where we need to go to make all of this work, right? Yeah, no, and it's yeah, it certainly seems to be a work in progress. Um, but I think that's unfortunately going to have to be kind of the last point to take away because believe it or not, we're already out of time. Wow. I want to thank my guest, Karen Connolly, for a great conversation today. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. 